It's Robin Marshall, Sugar Mom. Before you begin to listen to Chapter 26, if you're not caught up, please go to Audioboom or remain on iTunes and download the previous episodes. Subscribe. It's free. But I'd hate for you to pick up right now and miss all the things I've talked about from the beginning. It's the Diary of a Sugar Mom. Don't tell the kids. It's a hot story, very introspective, and if you miss one little thing, you're going to be lost right now. If you could also leave a comment, tell me how you like the book so far. Maybe give me a review, click a few stars. It keeps me on track to know what I'm doing right versus what I'm doing wrong, and know how much I appreciate the fact that you're sharing this story with me. Let me continue. Chapter 26 Michael Rock the Boat Ashore I wonder at times if I'll ever get out of this cab. I'm randomly thinking about clothing and what to wear for the next time, maybe for one of the men I've set out to meet in Nashville. Of course, I know it's more about the undressing, and if it's done by him, it's important to let him feel like he's doing it like no man has ever done it before. Strip me in only the way you know how to do. If he allows me to take my clothes off myself, I tease and taunt and do it slowly enough until I can see him break a sweat on his upper lip. It's an art form. I've become today's version of Gypsy Rose Lee. I just don't use the fan. I use thigh highs, heels, and a drop-to-the-floor teddy. Even though I've jumped ahead of the story, being the tease that I am, I'm remembering, thinking, as if my life is on this screen, who will really care? A passing thought. I'm making myself dizzy, thinking about all those years ago. With every speed bump the driver goes over, all it's doing is stirring up memories of my most recent experiences of men I've had relations with. Who do I feel like fantasizing about? Could it be Michael, the guy with the boat who never had sex on the water? What's the point of having a boat if you can't make it rock? I truly didn't understand it. I think God knew what he was doing when he decided to make me a woman. I would have turned the whole male population upside down with my way of thinking if I were a man. Or maybe he intended for me to be a force to contend with, a woman to make men think outside their secure little boxes. Damn, I rocked Michael and his boat good. I'm sure it was a religious experience for him. He got more bang for his buck than he expected, that's for sure. And in this kind of way, allowed me a month of medical insurance coverage for my kids. To me, that works. Even though I add in the fun factor, rationalize, compartmentalize, whatever eyes, it's what it's all about. My kids being protected. I thank God I love sex, as it makes it so much easier a task. Most women I'd ever known had never been so entrepreneurial as me, I thought as I looked in the recesses of my mind from just last night. I looked at what I'd been wearing and realized how important a role sexy lingerie had been playing in my life. How does a wife, mother of five, Business owner, employee, soccer mom, baseball mom, dance mom, best friend, go from all of that to losing her marriage, many of her beliefs, 
almost losing her house, changing cities, uprooting kids, losing her newly found job, and then, scarily enough, doing that entrepreneur. Chapter twenty-seven: The Perfect Daughter. How did this happen? Remembering, I tried to please my dad for my entire life because, to me, he was larger than life. I think it affected the way I looked at men. I continued by trying to please boyfriends that mattered and a husband. No one could measure up to my expectations. In fact, I don't know if they were my expectations or my dad's. It all seems so clear now, very transparent. How in the world did I not see this before? Time became my friend because it allowed me to hide from the truth for greater periods. No man, including my husband, could ever live up to what my dad had become in my head. Looking back through time, I feel so badly for my husband. He never stood a chance. While riding in the cab, I'm watching, looking at people out the window, wondering if their lives are as twisted as mine, reflecting on the horrific experience of losing my job. Just when I thought things couldn't get any worse, I received a call that my dad had been on a cruise and had suffered a heart attack. The boat was docking in Baltimore in order for him to receive urgent medical care. I immediately flew to be at his bedside, a place I'd occupy for the next month. Here I was, faced with my second and third very delicately balanced lifelines, going up in smoke. My first was the demise of my marriage. The man I thought I could lean on, just like my dad, became human and had very little superpowers. The man lying in the bed, attached to the tubes, was losing all the superpowers I grew up with, seeping out of his pores slowly, slowly, with every beat of that monitoring machine. Beep, beep, weaker, weaker. It's a very sad state of affairs when a woman realizes too late into a relationship that she expected way too much from a man that couldn't, wouldn't, and never should have measured up to what was really an imaginary knight on a white horse called Daddy. I'm not sure I'll ever live that one down. No, he was far from the perfect husband, but to force someone to be something they're not is the bigger sin. There I go. Giving credit to a man once again, where it may just be better to give that credit to myself for solving the puzzle and keeping us afloat. God forbid I take credit. The second lifeline was losing my job and my last sense of security. The man that fired me was a rare find for me. Where I normally would find the good in any man, I despised him and could find nothing nice to think or say about him. My third lifeline was undeniably the most unbelievable thought that my father would no longer be here some day. I'd spent so many of my adult years trying not to lean on him in my own home remedy of Dora does not need daddy that I was now in a panicked state of saying to myself, "You idiot! Look at the time you've wasted trying to be an independent woman. Now what? Lean." Lean hard, and maybe he'll stay. Who was I kidding, really? When I look back and remember trying to be my own woman without his superpowers, I realized that his supposed gift was never allowing me to feel like I could really do it all on my own. 
That was his way of needing to feel needed. He had a very powerful reach that grabbed my soul and held me firm. I didn't stand a chance. No matter how strong-willed I was, he was so much stronger. He made me enchanting and at the same time a menace to the male population in my pre-sugar days. It's almost as though through his creation I was a sugar baby in the making. I knew exactly where to hit a man with compliments, how to flirt to get what I wanted, subtly, of course, and how to recognize just who I might be smarter than in order to manipulate them. I learned all of this, all the while he was telling me, I love you, Dora, your daddy's girl. Yes, he loved me, but I really believe he loved himself more. Why else would those reins have been held so tight without me even knowing it? I manipulated my husband's life by not even recognizing the strength of my own father's will. Or was he that good of a father? And all of these years later, I choose to believe not because I've never been able to live up to the perfect daughter image. Here I was at his bedside, not knowing if I wanted him to stay or go, because I'd just recognized all of this while looking at him laying there, for the first time not being able to talk or tell me what to do. It was the first time I felt out of control and yet way in control. My third lifeline was more like a tightrope without the pole. Not only did I not know what I wanted, I was his only next of kin, which made me his executor. It wasn't about just having the ability to say, hey, daddy, I'm done. I literally was put in the position of being the one to shut down the life support machines that would make him really be done. I don't think anyone can be vicious enough to make that decision based on insecurities of past lifetimes. So I stayed by his side, sleeping on floors, spending money I didn't have on hotels, and eating what I could from the cafeteria. I spent the first two weeks in Baltimore getting him stronger. It was not only critical for him, but the first two weeks after losing a job, as I did, should have been critical for a job search as well. His illness prevented him from talking, so I held his hand and helped him to write while he was on the ventilator. It was shaky writing, but we were able to communicate. He, the successful retired media spokesperson that couldn't talk, and me, the recently fired media host that couldn't tell her dad the news of her recent firing. I was afraid that his heart wasn't strong enough to break for me, which I knew it would. The sounds of the beeping from the heart monitor still wake me up in the middle of the night. They scared me to death back then, and apparently I'm not over it yet. He knew of the financial hardships my husband, the son he'd always wanted, and I were already having. And he also knew that I'd had one foot out the door of my marriage for years already. I wondered who he'd miss more, my husband or myself. I just didn't want him to feel that stress. So I'd take my laptop and excuse myself for short periods of time and race to find web-friendly locations inside the hospital to do research and finding a replacement job that would allow me to finally tell him the truth. Daddy, I didn't do as you suggested. I did not keep my mouth shut. And as a result, I'm out of a job. What was the most bizarre thing of all was that he knew my husband hadn't been working at all. And he found a million excuses for him... For me, there wouldn't be any. Stress. 
Oh my God, so much stress. The lying was the hardest part of all because I had to become an actress in a hurry in order to keep the starring role of the perfect daughter. What do you think? At this point in the story, do you think you could consider, if you and your children were in dire straits, having sex for money? Would you consider it prostitution under those circumstances? Please feel free to leave comments on either Audioboom or iTunes. While you're there, leave me a review. I'd love to know if you're liking the book. There's more to come. Stay close. It's Robin Marshall, Sugar Mom, with the story, The Diary of a Sugar Mom. Don't tell the kids. Chapter 28. What's Chinese for hot? A sidebar, if you will, for pure entertainment purposes. In the middle of all of this chaos, my job-seeking, life-saving laptop was stolen while I sat having my first martini in two weeks at the hotel across the street. This gave new meaning to the phrase, adding insult to injury. I had to find a computer shop and rent a laptop For the rest of his hospital stay, I rented it from a small repair shop down the street. And after I got to the hospital, I turned on the laptop and much to my dismay, everything was in Chinese. I asked the nurse if there might be enough leftover drugs for me at that point. Heading back to the repair shop for an English translation, I wondered if it would really matter. There were so few available jobs out there in my field, it may as well have stayed in Chinese. The second reason I didn't want to tell him of my recent unemployment was because even though he couldn't speak, I could imagine the expression in his eyes while wagging his finger and shaking his head at me with the words telepathically escaping his brain and entering mine. You and that mouth of yours. Why can't you just do your job and mind your business? I just couldn't imagine that non-conversation between us feeling the shame that I disappointed both of us. When a man was involved and something would go wrong, it was always my fault. For one of the first times in my life, I kept my mouth shut. Within those first two weeks, I was offered a position to head up a team for a large and growing media company. Details were given to me whenever I could find a hotspot in the hospital that would allow emails and I came to find out it would involve a relocation. It was a definite step up in my career, enough of an incline that I felt comfortable enough with going to my recently conscious dad and finally telling him the whole truth. When I began with, Daddy, I lost my job. He raised his finger, then that damned eyebrow, and gave me that look and waving me off expression with his hand, while I quickly tried to throw in the news of the new job, trying to stop his waving hand in midair. I told him I was offered the job by someone in the industry whom had admired his career, embellishing the story just a bit. I mean, when we're with our parents, we're never adults. We always try to win their praise. They, in turn, allow us the luxury of never really having to grow up. The monitor kept beeping while he finally changed expressions. His hand stopped moving, and I watched the blip of his heartbeat, beep, 
beep. Scared to death of that mechanical, yet medical, outcome of what I'd just told him, both eyebrows went up, and he slowly patted my hand as if to say, Good job, Dora. Oh, my heart felt light enough for the two of us, and I was sure he'd make a remarkable recovery because of it. Was he reveling in my victory, or was he too busy taking pride that his name had something to do with it? I didn't really care at the moment. I decided to put it away for the time being and save it for a moment of reflection, like now. Even during my darkest days of dealing with my father while in the hospital, I had this fantasy of having sex with his doctor. His demeanor allowed me to dream of him approaching me and asking him, Could you please just join me in that closet over there and just rip off my clothes? I'd be truly appreciative. In fact, I believe that might have been when I started to formulate my profile for the soon-to-be-prosperous chapter of my life called Sugar Baby. I had so many sizzling adjectives and verbs running through my brain because of that doctor and passion that had been locked up for what felt like forever again that I was truly shocked he hadn't picked up on my intent and dragged me by my hair into that closet. Hospital rules and ethics be damned. You, you, the daughter with the dirty thoughts, come here and Get on your knees. While at my dad's bedside, as he slept, I pictured myself obeying this doctor to the point of needing knee pads. This man just had that effect on me. Desperation? I don't know. Holy hell, he'd walk in the room and I'd start to blush immediately. I just couldn't help it. Where'd the grieving, destitute daughter go? I guess I needed a release. Another hint of what was to come? Oh, I'm just being ridiculous. But at the time it happened, I was feeling borderline out of control. Even as the diligent bedside daughter, I still had sex on my mind, light and airy enough to lift me off my chair towards the closet. That closet with that damn doctor. He was so hot and I was so bad inside of my head. What kind of a daughter can think like this about a man she's never met before while being in charge of her father's life and death well-being? Even in my state of denial, I damn well knew that that doctor was looking at me in the same way. It's just a matter of who tells the truth about what they feel at the moment and who doesn't. You and that mouth of yours. A new concept to me? No, obviously not. I'd been telling the truth my whole life, not just for moralistic reasons, but for my own entertainment factor just to gauge the reactions from the recipients. Who can be a real man and handle the Dora truth? Will you please stand up? If you do, I may just go down. Comically, who knew that I'd be hearing the words, you and that mouth of yours, from many others in my immediate future, but for a completely different reason? Why this doctor had that effect on me at that time, I'm not sure. However, I will admit a little piece of me snapped right then and there. I felt the crack. It's like a piece of glass that starts with a tiny chip and spreads slowly until you no longer can see clearly through what's supposed to be transparent. It was determined by the hot doc. 
that my dad was strong enough to be transported to a hospital back home. I don't think I've ever felt that shaky in my lifetime. Watching him being put into an ambulance during an unexpected snowstorm, and truly wondering if I'd ever see him again. I still cry as I type this. I videotaped saying goodbye, crying as I watched my dad being driven away. I videotaped it while providing a running commentary, making light of it on the surface, while in my head weighing the odds: will he make it there alive or not? I still have the tape and the pictures of him after the trip. They were so heart-wrenching to look at that I couldn't open that part of my phone again. I was too afraid to look and didn't think I could live through it again. I think it was the closest I'd come to recognizing that so-called breaking point. As I finally called the airlines and booked my flight home to see my kids, I missed them terribly, and yet I was so tired. That I was dreading the reconciliation, having to explain the details, the well-being and not so well-being of their grandpa, while hiding the near destruction of myself. In my head, I'm imagining the conversation. I suspect it would go like this: "Kids, I'm so stressed out. I can't feel anything. I've lost my job. I'm probably going to lose my dad. And while you're at it." I want nothing to do with your father. Are you guys okay with that? Can you relate? I didn't say those words out loud, but they were certainly forefront in my mind. Their dad, my husband, was able to cry over my dad being ill, even when I couldn't. Totally unfair, and yet it fell right into the mold of my father's wishes. The son he always wanted. Why would I interfere with that? It's cosmic. Two men, two egos that I must protect. So of course I'd keep my mouth shut. A rarity, but of course. In fact, if I had opened my mouth, which my dad had kindly continued to remind me was my course in life, I would have alienated the entire family. So I went home, let them all digest, cry, and tell me it would be okay as I stood by, dry-eyed. And weary, I could not grieve for the situation or the impending doom I was feeling. I had too much to do, and no one else was doing it. Someone had to get a job. Someone had to take care of the kids. Someone had to take care of me. Why couldn't that happen? When a woman is so admittedly tired, where is the white knight that my mom had told me if I was lucky enough might? Just show up. For that matter, I would have settled for the red shoes that I could just click three times to escape on a whim when needed. It would have been a privilege I wouldn't have abused. Easier yet, where was the man? Not some god, just a man that could help me pick up the pieces and let me lean. Oh my God, I was so tired of being tired. I'd be so appreciative at this point if you could leave a review on iTunes or Audio Boom. Let me know if you're in deep with this story, or just click stars. Leave me a comment. Tell me how you feel about all of this. Could you do what Dora did to protect her children, having sex for money?
Chapter 29 The Long Road Home I flew back to our most recent home in Raleigh, where I'd just moved the kids less than a year previously, while no longer living with my husband. But this didn't stop him from moving nearby as well. He lived a town over and tried to make a go of it career-wise. Finally, his decision was a breakthrough for him, but remained numbing to me. This way, his recent inevitable lack of success rate would be of no shock to me when it happened. This trip back home was meant to be my obligatory stop to fill in the family and fill in my suitcase for an unfulfilling and uncertain future. I had a few hours which allowed me kisses for the kids, tears wiped, and three outfit changes for my bag. I had no answers for anyone. My husband was a mess, worse than my kids, to the point where I wasn't sure who I had to take care of first. I know he loved him. I know. Running to the airport, I felt the transformation. My life was changing. Not a midlife crisis, but a midlife alteration. Moving from the north to the south, losing my job, possibly losing my dad, already losing my husband, I considered this a life reboot. I needed to hold on to my mind before I lost that too. I made it back to my hometown to be by his side after he'd made a 575-mile, 18-hour trip recommended by the hot dock through that unexpected blizzard, which should have only taken 10 hours. I found him in a much weakened state when I arrived at the hospital located near his home. I was also dealing with his girlfriend of 23 years and her sister, both of whom adored him and both of whom had been added to my those-I-need-to-take-care-of list. Two more sets of wet eyes and double the breaking, aching hearts. My mom wouldn't help me because she hated him. In fact, she wouldn't step foot in his house even if it were clean as a whistle. To her, having distance from him was paramount. It left me alone once again to pick up a million fragments of someone else's life. Someone whom I'd held in the highest esteem for so long a time and had come to realize this life of his and home he lived in was a complete mess. I not only had to clean it up once and for all, I had to continue protecting his image and not let anyone know just what the size of the real mess was. While I cleaned it up, he didn't make it. Who's your daddy now, Dora? Chapter 30 Stubborn Man God damn him! I fucking hated him for not making it! How dare him leave me? How dare him? I am so upset and so heartbroken. As I'm writing, I'm devastated, even now, because the tears wouldn't spill. Maybe that's what I should call this book. How do you tell your children, the grandkids of the man they adored, that that man had lived like a hermit in a house that was a complete disgrace, filled with black mold, dirt, dust, clutter, nicotine, filth. How could I explain that when I was so physically spent? I couldn't even muster up the words to protect his image. I felt like I'd spent my whole life protecting his image based upon my mom's accusations and what I'd seen firsthand. It was never-ending. 
the change, coins stuck to his table, his desk, where I had to use a knife and a razor blade to scrape them off. Not because I wanted the money, but because I wanted to preserve the man's status. Everyone knew him to be the local superstar. In hindsight, I don't know if it was worth it. In my heart, I believe it was. But the toll it took on me to maintain that fake existence was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I was very close with his girlfriend, who lived two doors down in this condominium. So close, in fact, I had the courage to ask her, How could you allow him to live in this way? She answered, I couldn't change him, and I couldn't walk in his house. Plain as day, I understood. Stubborn man mattered not to him. The Adventures and Sorrows of Dora Next Thursday, we'll look and see what happens when Dora goes home. Which way does she turn for the remedy? To her children, to her husband, or to herself? For the remedy. Chapter 30 Stubborn Man God damn him! I fucking hated him for not making it! How dare him leave me! How dare him! I am so upset and so heartbroken. As I'm writing, I'm devastated. Even now, because the tears wouldn't spill. Maybe that's what I should call this book. How do you tell your children, the grandkids of the man they adored, that that man had lived like a hermit in a house that was a complete disgrace, filled with black mold, dirt, dust, clutter, nicotine, filth? How could I explain that when I was so physically spent? I couldn't even muster up the words to protect his image. I felt like I'd spent my whole life protecting his image based upon my mom's accusations and what I'd seen firsthand. It was never ending. The change, coins, stuck to his table, his desk, where I had to use a knife and a razor blade to scrape them off. Not because I wanted the money, but because I wanted to preserve the man's status. Everyone knew him to be the local superstar. In hindsight, I don't know if it was worth it. In my heart, I believe it was. But the toll it took on me to maintain that fake existence was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I was very close with his girlfriend, who lived two doors down in this condominium. So close, in fact, I had the courage to ask her, How could you allow him to live in this way? She answered, I couldn't change him. And I couldn't walk in his house. Plain as day, I understood. Stubborn man mattered not to him. There's much more to come. Every Thursday, I'm releasing chapters of my audiobook, The Diary of a Sugar Mom, Don't Tell the Kids. You can pick up a copy on Amazon or go to my website, sugarmom.net, where you can pick up the audiobook, the ebook, or the paperback book. Obviously, the paperback book, I have the ability to sign. 
So you'd have to tell me something personal about you so I could write it inside the cover just for you. But in the meantime, while you're here, could you please just leave a couple comments? Tell me what you think, how you feel. How is this affecting you? And also, if you don't mind, leave me a review or just click a star or five if you like it. Every Thursday, make sure you come back. And on Tuesdays, I have my regular Sugar Mom podcast, which is never anything you expect. It's just things that float through a woman's mind, things that no one could possibly make up. Thank you so much for listening. It's Robin Marshall, America's number one sugar mom. A Westwood One podcast production.